Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creatives brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author and director of the Centre and I am joined again by Jacob Renneker, friend of the Centre and expert on Tolkien and board game enthusiast uh, who's sitting over in Seattle in America. Now, this year, 2023, is unbelievably the 50th anniversary uh, since the death of J.R.R. Tolkien, who died at a ripe old age in September of 1973. And so, no doubt, many people are going to be spending this year thinking about what this half-centenary means, and particularly what is the legacy of Tolkien 50 years on. It's possible that we may have enough distance from him um, to begin to understand how he's helped shape our culture and quite what he means to us all. At least that is the theme that we're going to be discussing today. So, Jacob, um, I was alive just uh, when Tolkien passed away. Not that I was aware of him. I was far too young for that. But has your whole life been lived um, post his death? Yes. I'm not going to ask it for has. exact age, but you look a little bit younger than me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it so, is. For many people uh, like us, we have always thought of him as someone who has gone before. Um, we don't have the living memory of him. So let's try and recreate what status he had in 1973 when he died. Just how famous was he? So what's your understanding of his stature on the point at which he left us? Yeah, and I'll be speaking from kind of an American um Yeah, please do. uh perspective here. Uh and that's, you know, I'm I'm definitely aware of uh people and folks that I knew who are older who read, you know, the books as they were coming out. Um and it definitely had an impact uh, in America. Um is really fascinating the you know american hippie subculture Mm. um where there's this overlap between hippie subculture anti-war movement at the time right this is vietnam Mm. um that there's something about these books that just like really captivated these people um uh in that uh, and this is around the same time you had a bootlegged uh, paperback version of Lord of the Rings that Ace Books uh, published, and there's a whole legal yeah <laughs> kerfuffle there. Yeah. But it, but it, but what that did was it made it widely available uh, 
to a public that um, some of whom were, see this story of, you know, um, you know, Sauron, Mordor, this dark force that's kind of an empire that's kind of, you know, stifling f- free speech and creativity. And so they're actually um, these people are applying this to the American government, to their own country's government, to the war, you know, the, um, you know, military industrial machine of their mm. own country and saying like this here is essentially spelling out clearly <laughs> what is happening, what is wrong with America and what we're protesting against that our own country is is involved with. So it really struck a chord yeah. uh, over here with some of the um yeah uh, kind of yeah politically uh, militarily things that were happening at the time when it came on uh, when it came out over here. Yeah, I funny you should say that about hippie culture because I was quite by different reading track entirely. I was reading uh, Rupert Everett's um autobiography red carpets and other banana skins which is about the first stage of his career and he just as a sort of throwaway comment talks about one um woman in his circle like his parents age who goes away and joins a commune called loft Lorien in the mm-hmm. 60s i'm thinking oh gosh so that really was the thing that people were doing and they were using tolkienian terms as a shorthand to all sorts of other uh, we are countercultural we are protesting and i've seen the badges you know frodo for president you know that yeah, stuff frodo lives yeah yeah that <laughs> that stuff um and it does so if we just go back to the point at which the books are published in 1950s the kind of debates around it then which tolkien addresses in his preface is much more about how it reflects on the outcome of the second world war um the bomb the a bomb and so on so that is one of the first things to sort of notice that the books have the applicability which he talked about that each decade each phase has made their own tolkien and it's happened quite quickly so some other writers from the past it takes longer for these cycles to happen but with tolkien it was sort of in overdrive even towards the end of his life but just going b- back to 1973, almost all those people were thinking about Tolkien in terms of the books mm-hmm. and the art that was inspired by the books. Um, I think the the beginning of the sort of the cartoon versions that's the 77. It's, it's a bit later, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. yeah. It is. Um, I can't remember exactly, but it. it it's not yet become a moving picture of any sort. So it's based on the books. And I think that from an English perspective, um, everybody here knows what an Oxford professor is. There's a certain Tweedy uh, gent type, and he fitted that caricature. So that was quite strongly in people's minds. And so that plus the hippie culture was kind of funny. Because it seems like the opposite <laughs> to what he was. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and but he was famous enough to have the BBC make sort of programs about him, interview him, which you can find on YouTube. So he isn't obscure. He's not like a forgotten figure, not like Charles Williams or somebody like that from the Inklings. He was noticed, but not his literature was not valued in academic circles that's absolutely certain his his academic work was valued 
but not his books, which are we're in the Oxford Common Rooms, were slightly embarrassing. You know, you know, Tollers has gone away and written this book about elves, that stuff. So I think while he had his fans and his defenders, you know, from WH Alden onwards, um, when at the point at which he died, it was seen as a bundle of contradictions that Tolkien had this professorial career and he had his um you know the the lasting legacy of his essays and things which are still taught and read and then there was all this fantasy stuff over here that those that little group of inklings put together and you know it's a bit iffy along with c.s lewis they're all a bit kind of yeah so that i think was how it was seen then um yeah i know and it's interesting in uh, america you have the tolkien society of america uh definitely i think latching onto the academic angle. Mm. Um, so they, they meet their first meeting, the Tolkien Society of America was in 1965, and they met beside uh, the statue of Alma Mater on the uh, Columbia University campus. So they're like, so they're invoking, so one of the oldest colleges in, in the US, like really trying to, I think, <laughs> borrow or get some kind of secondhand uh, I don't know pedigree uh for what they're doing seeing what yeah. he's doing as being worth uh worth pursuing not just from kind of a fan fun uh perspective kind of trivial yeah. perspective but something that's worthy of discussing in depth and treating in articles and symposia and that sort of thing yeah so i think one of the things which kind of helped stabilize some of those contradictions were the work of people like the Tolkien Society, and of course, Christopher Tolkien, who are actually treating uh, the fantasy as seriously as the academic work that he did, that Tolkien did. And that real hard work, you know, they were doing the papers, holding the symposium, taking this all seriously in a way which other people weren't, um, the sort of snobby literary people weren't, actually kept that side of it alive. And I wonder, you know, it was part of the ingredients that makes him much more. Well, we haven't got to today yet. Let's 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 <laughs> let's move on. So we're talking about our fifty-year spread. So the seventies, we were left with this perplexing figure who's certainly not regarded as great literature, popular but not literature. Um, and then moving on, we start to have. People, there's a whole sort of burgeoning of fantasy again, um, and which is fueled by the the books, which has been feeding into people writing that you know the classic fantasy three tome book. But you get outside literature, you're getting things like um, the Bakshi is it Bakshi film? Um, yeah, yeah, and talks about film rights. I mean, we, obviously the Beatles tried to make it earlier on, but that would have been ghastly that's glad i'm pleased that didn't happen <laughs> i would i would have enjoyed it. i would i would love to see what they did with it yeah the musical might have been all right right <laughs> um but yeah anyway that that that's the, the in a parallel world somewhere they've made it you know the beatles in that <laughs> parallel world so yeah um and i think we i'm beginning to come into my own living memory here so this helps so if we think about it in the 80s it's still a bit uh if you said, as I did when I was at uh, Cambridge, I want to actually write my thesis on um, Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, um, people did look at you as if 
Are you sure that's literary enough? I did a, um, a my thesis in my undergraduate degree in my last year was about sub-creation and the idea of creativity. Mm. Um, and I was looking at C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. And I know I had to sort of persuade my supervisor that this was sufficiently worthy. I wouldn't have any problem now because there are, you know, courses on it and it would be, uh, you know, there's loads of serious literature written about it, but it wasn't there when I was doing it. Um, so it hadn't yet got over the line of moving to being regarded as literary, but it was prevalent in in culture. So we have the Dungeons and Dragons movement, movement, you know, well, what do they? What does Dungeons and Dragons people call themselves as a collective? Fans, yeah, fandom of that. Um, beginning of computer games. One of the first things that became a computer game was The Hobbit. I remember it was. People now would think it's just so analog. It was where you had to type in commands to get through a series of images. But we thought this was amazing. I spent one summer holiday in the eighties playing this. Um, and also the BBC made some fantastic audio versions, which you can still get and still stand up to a listen, uh, including the music, which had been around for a while, but they did a good interpretation of the music, very atmospheric, great cast. Um, and that's certainly where I, I spent a lot of time listening to that. You know, it was one of my favorite <laughs> things on cassette tape <laughs> back in the day. So we're beginning to get it spreading out, but still I could go up to people. And if I said, do you know who Tolkien is? It wouldn't be instant recognition, but I think there's been a sort of, well, let's ask what's happening in America in the same, at the same era. Um, yeah. you, were you, were you born yet? In Just? the eighties? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you may was, not remember it. Waddling, then. waddling around. Um, yeah. And I think, and that's where, so yeah, definitely, um, like Lord of the Rings, uh, that kind of fantasy culture that wasn't main, you know, certainly not mainstream, the high fantasy, uh, mm. books wasn't, you know, kind of, yeah, mainstream culture widely accepted. That was a certain strand of fantasy, kind of hardcore fantasy that people who played games like Dungeons and Dragons, would have really loved and so there's i think the the greatest association that you had would be between dungeons and dragons and lord of the rings which and we'll talk about this later the impact the lord of the rings had that's you know certain things lifted <laughs> directly from lord of the rings for the creation of dungeons and dragons and then when you have dungeons and dragons culturally over here this um association kind of accusation that dungeons and dragons encouraged uh, if not actively proselytized, you know, proselytized for uh, Satan worship, um, right. that was a whole right. So because you have you do have associations between the these people these these people we're talking like orc though they're orcs now these people who play Dungeons and Dragons read Lord of the Rings this sort of literature fantasy this is clearly problematic so in some cases it's seen with suspicion sometimes perhaps um as uh, a threat of sorts for uh people you know 
right-minded, upstanding citizens that might need to... Yeah, uh, I I think what's going on there is when you get really in love with Lord of the Rings, you kind of live in a world where you're seeing everything through the lens of Lord of the Rings. It becomes not like, an, not like a belief system, not like a religion, but it has that power that yeah. um, they become the people you associate with and you've got your own sec- secret language and understanding and shorthands for things. Mm-hmm. And you can see how... Um, people could get suspicious of this right. actually that reminds me i did uh so cast your mind back to 1987 when i went to college and at the fair when you have all the university societies i tried to join the cambridge university tolkien society i did join i paid my subs went along to the first meeting and i was such a fish out of water it was the cliche of extremely I, I'm trying to find a nice word. <laughs> you can describe them as orcs if you need to. No, 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 no. They weren't orcs at all. They were very gentle folk, but yeah. they 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 lacked social skills with women. <laughs> Let's put it like that. So I come in as bright-eyed lover of um, Tolkien as literature, as the book, into a room of slightly socially awkward young guys um, who were whose way of sort of welcoming the outsiders to talk about different forms of Elvish. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, and I was thinking, oh, this is, you know, I, I'm coming in thinking I like this from the point of view of story. I want to write books like this. You know, that's why I'm coming in. That's why I'm in. And I've discovered that the way they were relating to Tolkien was at this sort of technical level, which I just wasn't, I needed some crash course in, you know, Tolkien's languages to have any common ground. So that's where I think, that sense of it was the Provence of a more nerdy type of person came from is that those who tried to break into it kind of bounce back off because we couldn't, couldn't sort of relate. Um, that's not the problem now, I think, cause it's, it's opened up so more, but that, that was a 1980s problem. Okay. Moving on, we get to um, the 1990s and at the end and we, of course, got the arrival of um, the internet in the late 90s. Email. Hooray. <laughs> um, and we get the rumour coming out of New Zealand that somebody is making a film. What was your first reaction when you heard someone was making a film of Lord of the Rings? Well, I'm... Uh... I don't know, it's shamefully a little latecomer. So I, I wasn't uh you interested. reading okay. Lord of the Rings. I, I wasn't something I was aware of, but it when to to my <laughs> to my father's credit, like as soon as uh that came out, um I was uh out of the country for a while and then I'd I'd come back and he said it was around around a December. This was December uh two thousand one, uh, and he said, I'm taking you right now to see fellowship of the ring okay so that, that's when i go it's to done. see this that's where it yeah. started that's where it started for me yeah yeah so yeah. so that came over i saw that and that's what just like really captivated me and introduced me and then i just kind of plunged then jumped straight into the deep end from that uh but it was yeah yeah so uh, so i can't say what it was like in, in my circle it wasn't you really okay. I, I wasn't aware of it then yeah so by that point part of the 90s i was doing a doctorate in literature at oxford so um and <laughs> Um, Tolkien's looking at it now as literary, it had begun to be more of a sense of its literary value by then. 
And we were talking about it in our literary circles in Oxford. And my good friend, Michael Sinatra, who's now a professor of literature in um, Montreal, he said, oh, he was the one who told me it was happening. And my reaction was, oh, no, that's going to ruin it. Because I had in mind those like uh, Harry House houseman those like little figurines like anim mm -hmm. animated things i thought oh the special effects are going to be terrible they can't possibly live up to my imagination the the film that my imagination has been playing all these years i was really worried who is this peter jackson person you know how dare he i was really really worried and michael bless him um showed me online one of the early trailers for it i've heard peter jackson talk about this um since that, that trailer was a sort of like experimental um things they were putting together partly to quieten the worries of people like me potential audience um the many millions of us who are worried and i saw that and the landscapes of new zealand and thought maybe maybe this is going to be okay Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies, and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Um, and I, I wasn't, um, uh, I didn't go in, in to see the films hostile. I went in hoping. So I was in that, that band. So I think we can agree that even though Tolkien was important and growing and would often appear on a list of people's favorite novels of the 20th century, him and um, Jane Austen is often have, you know, the top two places, my two favorite authors. Um, the films then did the thing where his name and his value as a property has gone stratospheric. I mean, it's like, if we're going to draw this on a curve, it sort of is doing that and then it goes like that. Um, so going back to you, you fell in love with Tolkien's world by seeing the film first. Right. Yeah. And what did you then think? Did you then wait? Did you see all the films, then read the books, or did you see? No, a film? I read. I picked up. I picked up. Yeah, <laughs> I picked up the book right after the first film to see what happened next. Because I was, yeah, I was captivated by the world, uh, the ideas, the drama. Yeah, the story, the characters, all of that was just a revelation uh, <laughs> in several ways. And so, yeah, yeah. So that's why I, that's when I got into the books and was eagerly anticipating the subsequent films uh, as they, as they came out. Yeah. I can remember the year, you know, each time there was a year between each thing. Mm -hmm. So you'd come back from the cinema and Aragorn had said something like, let's hunt some orcs or something. And you're thinking, 
you're imagining them running across the landscapes and you had to wait a whole year until you <laughs> saw, to run <laughs> to see that chase yeah it was the anticipation was fun though because yeah. it was something yeah. to really look forward to so i think we're describing the global phenomenon just through our own experience of this um so just thinking about your value of tolkien and his sort of so clearly he's given a lot to the whole idea of fantasy on screen but before we think about that side of him what about his value to changing the way we look at literature and the place of fantasy and literature a sort of more i was going to say more serious conversation but you know what i mean it's the, it's the thing i was i met in the 80s where you had to argue for him being a literary of literary value whereas now i think that's that's gone and he is regarded as being seminal so looking back with 50 years to um the status of lord of the rings do you have any feelings or thoughts about it as its place within literature as a book yeah and, and, and his I other writings it, of course yeah yeah no that's, that's a great question i think that definitely he i think single-handedly made a case for the value of the genre of fantasy mm. in literary circles right so first there was certainly a stigma but he was kind of carving new ground in his but, but he was he wasn't carving new ground he was really just kind of dusting off and bringing forward much older and older mode yeah. of story right um and and so i think yeah that 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 it's easier to see now right so people you can look at you know uh what are the antecedents to tolkien mm -hmm. and you can really trace a genealogy of serious he, he was he was meticulous right you talk about beowulf uh we we're talking last time when we we're talking about orcs and um possible connections there you see how well thought out his world as a structure as you see where these certain ideas and strands um tropes and themes but he's not playing with them you know hazardously he's meticulously crafting stories and and then now with everything that's come uh since the publishing of lord of the rings from christopher tolkien uh with all of the you know history of middle earth showing how, <laughs> how painstakingly he was developing these ideas uh and so i think it's is it's much easier now that you can see all of the you know what's off camera or off the page you see how much effort energy and really a work of genius that it took to put all of this together and went into this so i think that's helped to open up like you said uh the minds of people to taking this seriously as something that deserves to be studied as a work of art a work of literature and a work of cultural significance i think it's no mistake that um he and and c.s lewis were both medievalists and and in tolkien's case earlier because when you think of the the great set texts in those periods they're fantasy works so beowulf we've talked about um which is a alliterative poem um sir gawain in the green knight another alliterative poem but mallory who we don't talk about very much in context of um tolkien but it should be in there because in a way Mar mallory with his arthurian more cycle um he is doing the closest thing to the world building of tolkien because the background to Mallory's work is a whole series of stories about Arthur from all sorts of sources. 
going back many centuries before to over in France and, and so on. And he's sort of building a thread through that, that's his, that his Arthurian cycle. Um, and it's in prose. So not, it's, I wouldn't call it a novel, but it's stories written in prose. And then at the end of the medieval period going into the Renaissance period, you've got the Fairy Queen, which is a massive um, work by Spencer, which is an allegorical telling. But obviously the Fairy Queen, it's the world of fairy um, with knights and um, quests and all sorts of, of stories. So these are the works that were being studied. And it's only when you move on from that, that the, the, the fantasy as the genre sort of drops out a little bit. Um, though obviously you can say that some of Shakespeare's greatest plays are fantasy, but I'm thinking further on. So you've got um, Gulliver's Travels, I suppose, Pilgrim's Progress, though that's sort of allegorical, but it's got giants and things in it. And then you get to the world of the novel um, and the popular novels from the 18th century <coughs> onwards tended to be um, um, ones which are like um, peregrinations, like travel ones, the sort of Humphrey Clinker, that kind of thing, Smollett. Or you've got the um, epistolary novel like Samuel Richardson, or you've got Jane Austen, or you've got historical novels like I'm sort of going forward in time here, Walter Scott, and then you've got Charles Dickens, George Eliot. You, there isn't a big fantasy work there. And fantasy that pops up in the Victorian period is either something like the wonderful Alice in Wonderland, or you've got ones who are verging into the sort of sci-fi area towards the end of that period, um, which is things like H.G. Wells. Though I would admit there is the Gothic around, but that's sort of horror, Frankenstein. I mean, they are fantasy, but they're sort of in a slightly different bracket in my head, I think. So... People who were teaching literary courses and were thinking that, you know, the way to go is Ulysses and Virginia Woolf and, um, yeah, all these sorts of no fine found the idea of it being fantasy somehow like fairy stories, children's stuff. And that's where it sort of fell away. Whereas if you're spending all your academic life teaching the fairy queen, um, Beowulf, uh, Gowan in the Green Knight, uh, Mort D'Arthur and so on, it felt totally natural to think that modern fantasy writing could have literary value. So it, I think it's no mistake that it was uh, C.S. Lewis who refounded uh, his form of portal fantasy and Tolkien who founded a sort of new version of a creation of a world fantasy, um, which he took seriously. Tolkien took his world incredibly seriously. Um, he knew it was a game, so I'm not saying he was humorless. He knew it was like one enormous, wonderful, delightful game, uh, exercise of the imagination, but he also took that seriously because there's nothing more serious than play. Um, <laughs> yeah, Chesterton, so, I tell you that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so we, we, have, we should do one of these on G.K. Chesterton. I must find a Chesterton yes. uh, expert because I, I don't know enough about him, and I know he was a huge influence. So... Looking at, I think that I'm very pleased to say 50 years on from the moment when Tolkien died, where 
his work was kind of slightly embarrassing for academia. Now, if you say as a student, I'd like to do a dissertation on Tolkien, they'll say, oh, yes, which, which aspect do you want to do it on? They won't say, oh, you know, go away. Uh, they'll be interested. Uh, and there are some fantastic academic books written about Tolkien papers and so on, including your own, uh, Jacob, um, that people can read to sort of open that up in an academic sense. What is for you, um, what what's what academic aspects of Tolkien have you followed? What's been the the will of the wisp that you followed across this particular marsh? Yeah, um for me part uh like mythology, uh myth building, myth making, right, that that Tolkien is engaged with, uh for me that's what's what is fascinating, the development the, the development of a cosmology, right? And mm. so um part of my uh, academic training uh is in uh, world mythologies uh and in you know different versions of different myths from each of these different uh different cultures, different eras, and different languages. And so there's re real affinities that I see with how Tolkien is developing his cosmology with his uh, cosmogony, right? His birth of the world, uh, putting that into conversation with some of these world um, uh, world myths is for me very, very uh, enlightening, uh, helps to highlight different things that make uh, both Tolkien's stand out and some of these other world myths uh, appreciate different aspects of them. So it's he, he put he put so much thought, effort, revisions, uh, approach them from different angles that it's 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 a worthy conversation partner to myths that have been around for mm. you know thousands and thousands of years. So for me, that's that's part of his is kind of putting it into conversation, having Tolkien as a conversation partner with uh, world myths and what he's doing. So. That's, that's one of the things that kind of captured me and got me into kind of academic uh, engagement with, uh, with Tolkien in particular. Yes, and, and I think that's one of the wonderful things about the richness of the material is that you can take it into, uh, you can look at it in a linguistic aspect, you can look at its theology, you can look at its world building, you can look at its themes, you can look at its... Um, relationship to eco-criticism i mean it's it's so rich and so the fact that people didn't see that and thought it was just a fantasy story back in the 80s is um that's a real improvement so 50 years on we can celebrate that we've 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 matured as judges of tolkien's work which is which is good so thinking about now tolkien is hot property no one's going to make a fortune out of writing an academic paper on Tolkien. I'm sorry, Jacob, that's not where the money yeah. lies. <laughs> yeah. So Tolkien now has become a property that has value for the world of film and television. So we we've have previously discussed things like the Rings of Power, the Peter Jackson films, uh, and so on. But should we look, move a little bit wider than that and see what else owes its existence to there having been Tolkien. Because um, I think a lot of the big stonking sort of big fantasy series do actually owe their existence to there having been Tolkien to start with. And so I'm looking at you, uh, Wheel of Time, um, The Witcher. Um, what else is there? Uh, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. House of the Dragon. 
So I think all of these exist because the Peter Jackson films were a success. If we rerun history and the Fellowship of the Ring was panned, that they did animation that was just no good, you know, like special effects were rubbish. Um, any of the cast was unwatchable. You know, all the things that could have gone wrong. Uh, Peter Jackson turned out to be a terrible director. Um I think we would not it, we would not have had this because I think it's different from the Harry Potter things that come along. I think there's a whole strain of fantasy films of Harry Potter-esque aspect which follow on all the ones set in schools like uh is it the magicians that one which is a high school version and even something like Wednesday the new um is that Netflix series these all seem much more like sons and daughters of harry potter uh whereas the big epic fantasy ones seem to owe their existence to tolkien i think that's probably why we have why they why they're there but do you think they're right thinking that tolkien's made away because i haven't oh. seen these things being as as successful game of thrones was because mm -hmm. uh, i'd say yeah. that was like a kind of bleaker lord of the rings it's like yeah. Lord of the Rings with Byzantine politics. <laughs> right. Or, or yes. Lord of the Rings run by the Borgias, you know, something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Plus seasonal depression. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting because I remember having a conversation with somebody um, pretty soon after uh, Game of Thrones came out. Uh, talking about Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones, kind of putting those in conversation with each other, um, uh, with a student uh, who was just noticing uh, tonally uh, that Game of Thrones was watching it, that that seemed like it was kind of a one-time watching for for him. He's like, yeah, like, yeah, I liked it, enjoyed it. I'm not going to watch it again. Okay. Whereas with the Lord of the Rings film, it was one that... For him, it was palatable that the tone, everything, it was something that bore multiple mm. rewatches. And so I think, yeah, there's something about the type of show, yeah, that, that while uh, Game of Thrones tells a particular type of story and a particular type of approach to life, I don't know that people want to be having that on repeat all of the time and just kind of yeah. watching that and those particular lessons or like what you learn about humanity and per in particular the negative part of humanity mm. or <laughs> that that if, if that's what you want reinforced i think part of what tolkien does is while there is um certainly you see people who are corrupted and uh you see traitors and um you know, uh, especially in the Silmarillion, right? You see some people that some um, some some true tragedies uh, happen. That there is still this kind of like undergirding idea of hope. There's some strand of yeah. hope that comes through. Uh, that even in even even though you're 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 facing this long decline, right? You know that the world is actually ending, <laughs> but yeah. yet there's something here that is hopeful that is pulling through this, this kind of sweetness intermingled with the sorrow, which goes back to Tolkien's cosmology and the creation of the world itself. So I, I think yeah. that is, is important and sets it apart from uh, a lot of these other works. I think it's like the star glass, you know, the Lady Gladriel's gift to Frodo, that the book feels like that. It's shining bright in the darkness. 
um you can bring it out and make it shine funnily enough today i was doing a school visit um about my books to um do like an assembly style event and part of what i do is i create stories with the children and they have like a cards they can select they can't see what they're selecting so it's a random selection thing and then ask them which which story they like best and one of them had had a bittersweet ending that was one of the endings was selected and one boy chose that as his favorite story and i said why why did you like that story and he said i like endings that don't feel too happy hmm. there's something in us that it's fine to watch you know the wedding bells sort of ending yeah i think there is a recognition that you know we're all going to die uh, yeah. there is an element where it feels closer to a lived experience even though it's a fantasy world where there is this sadness within the happiness mm-hmm. um and we but also a sense of redemption about that yeah. you know the, the idea that sacrifice isn't wasted frodo's sacrifice is worth it uh, yeah. even though it's personally costly and that's all that is really the most profoundest parts of life and that's why people rewatch. i'm sure because you it, it reaffirms some of those um hopes that we have for the meaning of our existence it sounds all very serious but that that is really <laughs> the value i get from lord of the rings and many other yeah. people do we've talked about the sort of film and tv world but we mustn't forget I mean, a huge, even bigger, way bigger, actually, in terms of monetary value is the games and video games aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not a great game player, but when my kids were growing up, we did have the um, PlayStation version games of Lord of the Rings. There was a very good um, uh, sort of I don't know, EA games or somebody came out with a sort of playable version of it. And I just enjoyed running around in the landscapes that they were created. And this is way back. This is back in the 2000s. So I'm sure now it's far better, far more sophisticated. I'm just not very good at that kind of thing. (laughs) I just don't want to spend hours to learn it. But I know a lot of people get a lot of value out of that. Are you, Jacob, a secret gamer? Uh, (laughs) I'm more... So I... I'm a story gamer in that mm-hmm. I play games. I don't like getting bogged down in the uh, mechanics and things that it's mostly I follow games that have good solid stories and mm. character develops and that sort of thing. So that those sorts of games I like. So like, you know, role playing games, those, you know, video games that are kind of the RPG realm sometimes are a bit difficult because there's a lot of <laughs> specifics, a lot of points and math that you have to do in those mm. uh and um, that that isn't as interesting to me as the core of the story but yeah but but i i understand i recognize and i tried what i like I, what i think is you know Le- legend of zelda the original uh game um uh when it first came out with uh, for nintendo i know that the writers of the first two games were were big tolkien fans and that that was you know kind of creating this kind of questing fairy tale um but the the most recent uh kind of open world game the breath of the wild uh the legend of zelda breath of the wild massive beautiful world i i I don't think something like that would be possible without tolkien uh Mm. really in a sense right so he kind of laid this foundation of world building um and what that can do and i know i was um talking with um with somebody at netflix uh, a few days ago 
um, uh, that's in their um, uh, spectacle and event television uh, programming. So they're dealing with a big budget, uh, things yeah. like Stranger Things, uh, like Wednesday, um, Shadow and Bone uh, on oh, Netflix, yes. another one of these. So these, so these are big budget. They're, they're, they, they recognize that there needs to be a large canvas and a large backdrop. And so they're looking for uh, works that lend themselves well to beautiful visuals, you know, sweeping um, landscapes, these ideas that are really capturing people's imaginations visually and the world itself, right? So politically, um, whatever's happening there. So so I think that, that that's certainly the same here for these video games. Uh, in that, you know, these, I, I think the popularity of open world games where you just want to get into and explore a world, not necessarily mm-hmm. just like follow a quest and you have kind of like a linear, um, start here, go here, and here's the conclusion. Um, but the open world games is really fascinating because it gives players a chance to just run around and live as if they're in mm-hmm. this world, right? And I know that there's, uh, some, you know, anticipation and mixed feelings uh by some about the game that's coming out about um uh hogwarts legacy uh it's yes. an open world game so this is a, an opportunity uh for people to get into hogwarts and like really <laughs> really get there like walk around experience it touch it taste it uh in a sense um in, in a video the- game sense in yeah. a video game, in a video game yeah. sense, right? Uh, the theme parks are a different thing, which I think there there could be some connection there with that's a different type of world building <clears throat> uh, and experience. But in the video games, that allows you to do more things, right? So uh, <laughs> allows you to fight that you are probably going to be doing to the same degree in your neighborhood. I hope you're yeah. not. I'm not encouraging that. It would actually discourage sword fighting, spell casting, where you're actually inflicting bodily harm on other people. Yeah, do but, it in a video still, game. Yeah, right, right. Do it in a video game. Get it out of your system. Uh, but but I think that that like what what Tolkien did was he invited people into this world. That's why you have people you know kind of dressing up these communes uh, that, were, that you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. They want to like step into and live this in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form. Like they want to be a part of it. And video games is an excellent way for people to get into that um, into that mindset, that kind of immersive uh, storytelling experience. Yeah, and it reminds me of, um, I mean, clearly it's probably something to do with the rights um, because I'm someone would have tried this, but we've got the Harry Potter world uh, over in, is Atlanta, isn't it? Um, and in this country, we've got the Harry Potter Studios experience, so extensions you can go and visit, which is close mm-hmm. to that visual experience. Um, the one obviously is about making the film rather than a, a world that you enter. And no one's done the Tolkien world, unless you can argue the entirety of New Zealand is that. Right, yeah. I remember um, living in Oxford that we were thinking, oh, well, let's let's repurpose Pulp Meadow and turn it into Tolkien world. And what would you put in it? You know, you'd have like the Moria dungeon experience. and the, you know. <laughs> yeah. But of course, I don't think it works because the scale, whereas Hogwarts is mm. like this little, they're li- they are little, littler sets like Diagon Alley, mm. uh, Hogwarts, you know, it, it does feel more more theme parky than saying um, we're going to build Lothlorien. It would just not work. It'd be Ursat. It would be, it would not feel. Yeah, it would. It would. Lo- it wouldn't have the authentic authenticity, which actually makes us all believe that somewhere Middle Earth exists. 
Um, so I don't think it, anyway, if someone is planning a Tolkien world, let me know and I'll, I'll, I'll go and visit it, but I don't think I'd like it. Uh, yeah, I'd love, I'd love to hear Julia, um, your thoughts on, uh, fantasy genre since, uh, Tolkien, the kind of echoes, ramifications, uh, things that you've seen, uh, mm. people do well and like the, you know, kind of positive, uh, yeah, implications yeah. of, of Tolkien. It is interesting that fantasy, um, so my writing career began in 2006 and actually the dominant fantasy genre there was Harry Potter. It brought a lot of money into fantasy publishing. I mean, that's just the economics of it had changed. So, uh, and the other big books around at the same time was the Philip Pullman, um, Northern Lights, both of whom you can see, um, I'm sure J.K. Rowling read Tolkien and, and it's things like the spiders, um, that kind of thing feels as though there is an element of she's enjoyed the Tolkien um, fantasy world, but she's actually harking much more to the school story than she is the fantasy story, the sort of the worst witch kind of story that already existed. Um, so... I think what 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 you see there in fantasy is there's this sort of it's like a uh like, like, like it's sort of ongoing mixing in of of ingredients folding in coming up with something new um Tolkien called it the cauldron of stories so each time there's a sort of scoop in and a serving but you can see in the sort of adult fantasy um books that were published post Tolkien that there was an expectation of long big series mm. uh that just the fact that it was quite fine to turn up with something that was 100,000 words long and in three volumes it, he made space for that in a way that I don't know if that's good or bad you know long form is not always good um but it did sort of open that out as an expectation um and changed how fantasy publishers thought about things so i remember reading things like um the stephen donaldson uh chronicles of thomas um covenant those yeah. ones which felt very elements of tolkien were creeping in um and uh the chronicles of uh it's, it's very tolkien named Pel pelinor um about a, a girl who's a slave who rises up and that's got i'm trying to think of the name of the um the the, the author of those um but there are quite a few books that feel very close to tolkien and of course aragon um yeah which you know is very very close so clearly there was a bit of a, a stranglehold <laughs> of tolkien in everyone's imagination and it's quite hard to break away from that because if you get such a dominant present like that if you're trying to think up a woodland realm even just saying woodland realm everyone thinks oh you're talking about elves and you're talking you know so right. um it has been called the anxiety of influence hasn't it by t.s Eliot. there i think there was that was going on um have we got through that possibly i think it's just yeah. a question of folding the material in better so you know, Christopher yeah. Paolini has come back and written more books. He, he won't be writing like he did at 16 or 17 whenever he wrote those books. Um, people, and I think now uh, what you see in a lot of fantasy writing is a 
picking up the theme of the worry about the environment, which Tolkien obviously has with the Ents and Saruman. So he's like way out in front of people worrying about this. But you very rarely now read uh, a fantasy series without the environment being really the major threat. You know, it's there as a you know, major, major theme, as it should be, because it is the right. problem of our times. Right. Um, but I think I one think- of the pro- one of the problems we've got with Tolkien is he was so brilliant at creating his whole world-building languages and what have you, that if somebody else does that, do we have the patience to give them the serious attention that we give Tolkien? It'd be See, interesting. Do you think? Yeah, I do? think. Uh, so, and I, th- I think this is this is what I see um, with Patrick Rothfuss and the Name of the Wind uh, yes. in that series, right? So he's clearly, and he's he's recognized this, right? So he loves Tolkien, and so he wants to be as careful and precise as possible in his world building, use of language, geography, and that. Yeah, and what that's done from. Unfortunately, from a consumer's perspective, is they want I need this book now, right? So I read yeah. this one, I need the next one. So they want volume, and so you know, folks waiting uh, years for so long yeah. for the next installment. And you have something similar happening with with uh, George R. R. Martin and the mm. Game of Thrones for the next book there. But particularly, I think with Name of the Wind, um, I think it's more self conscious. Uh, the Patrick Rothfuss is, he, he, he understands the seriousness with which people are approaching mm. his work. And because he said, like, I am being serious about this. And so people are taking it seriously. And so now it's kind of reflexive. And he's saying, oh, people are going to be taking this seriously. I need to make sure it's airtight. And so there might be some anxiety of his own influence in a sense of like setting up this, this, you know, here I set, I set the bar this high with the first book Mm. and I want to continue this story. I have to ensure that the quality of the second book is at least as good as this and thought through and that uh, everything has to be perfectly internally consistent with this, this world. So I think what Tolkien did unintentionally is you know he he set a standard for um the crafting of stories that now it, for some people it's good and bad right two-edged sword that it makes people more self-aware of how they're approaching the world building process um and people your know, audience uh readers of these books are paying more attention to that sort of thing mm-hmm. but at the same time it's making it sometimes uh, perhaps unnecessarily difficult for certain authors who are spending far longer in this sort of process than perhaps they need or even want to to tell the story that they want to tell. They feel obligated to flesh out and create an entire, you know, family tree of languages uh, before yeah. they, no, they no, get I, I, into writing. Yeah. So we, we teach creative writing at the Oxford Centre for Fantasy and we very much encourage fantasy writers to come because we understand that urge. And I, I've got um, students who are doing this. Um, and the difficulty is moving away from that to actually write the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't want the Silmarillion, you want Lord of the Rings um, in that sort of, in order for someone to read it. Um well, yeah, discuss. Yeah, and I think, and, yeah, and I think, yeah, Tolkien. What he was interested in doing was creating a world, 
Yeah. Um, and there were stories that existed within this world. Yeah. Um, and so that's why world building was so important for him because he wasn't just concerned about one particular story that he wanted to tell unless it was the story of creation as a whole. That was yeah. the kind of the overarching story, but he, you know, he, he said he wanted to create kind of essentially a canvas that other hands, you know, was broad enough that other hands and minds could connect, right? So he was wanting to create, uh, his words were a body of more or less connected legend that were linked into a majestic whole, yeah. but it would be big enough to leave scope for other minds and hands, uh, to do it. And not just in, written form right but tolkien said that initially his grand vision that other people would come in with uh he said wielding paint and music and drama so yeah <laughs> this was something that's big enough to capture multiple art forms um and but for writers that's not necessarily what they're about right it's the telling of a, a particular story or a self-contained story or a series of stories and not necessarily creating an entire canvas that people could explore not just in prose but in poetry and in art and in music and that's i think yeah, one of the things that that's sets and that's apart. absolutely wonderful and we exactly why we set up the center it's to encourage all those forms of creativity but actually your, your question was really made me think that i think where it's gone this world building is to collective efforts like the world of star trek so that's quite serious about things like learning Klingon mm. and having languages and timelines and multiple timelines. And, and obviously it's um, somebody somewhere is keeping the Star Trek, you know, Bible of events so mm. that we, it's all straight. But people say, oh, we're not just going to have a sort of funny old language, which could be inconsistent. No, we're going to have a structured language, which is Klingon, which is going to be this. And I don't think you'd get that without talking. And over in the Marvel universe, um, you've got similar um, sort of seriousness to, uh, you know, the whole sort of the cartoon, um, the comic version. And, you know, there's a very seriousness to looking at it as an encyclopedia of characters and different stories and different versions of stories. Mm -hmm. And the experts in those universes know exactly where they are and what they're doing. And I think the Marvel Universe is, you know, huge. Um, yeah, no, you see that in the films, yeah, especially. So, and I, I think you're right. You have different stories that are connecting together to make mm. a larger story, and right. So you have an overarching story with with smaller stories, and that's not unique to Tolkien in particular. But I think definitely you're right that you wouldn't necessarily get that the the care of crafting all of these different pieces in something large and as sweeping and cinematic. Um, you might even see it more so in uh, Star Wars, in like the like Star, yeah, Star, Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Wars, because you have both, you know, all the, these books and comics and video games and films and television series, and they all have to be coordinated mm. now. And then which ones are seen as being canonical versus, and at what point does is something considered canon? Um, and then you have things like the Disney acquisition that kind of throws everything into chaos but the but people are, are paying attention to all of these different things and, and keeping them straight and and seeing it as one consistent coherent whole and that's i think absolutely kind of a, a an echo um or an inheritance or a legacy yeah. of uh of, of tolkien and the, the care with which he was putting together an entire world with multiple stories characters spanning 
eons <laughs> of time. Yeah. Um, and I think it's wonderful. Yeah. So I think probably just to sort of sum up this discussion that um, really looking at Tolkien 50 years on, I think whilst maintaining the whole sort of wonderful creativity and playfulness of what he's he's done is that he's also taught us all that it's fine to be serious about fantasy you know that, that it that it that it's something that everyone can share so i think it's, it's a way that it brings people together we can all share it and have fun with that fantasy and i think that's his real legacy because it that sort of sums up what we've been talking about in academia uh, in the sort of literary world, in the extensions through uh, games. And, you know, that seems to be what's lying at the heart of his success. Yeah. And I'd, I'd think what I'd add to that is it, it's truly mythic what he's doing. Mm. Um, and in part of that, like in myth, there's a myth almost in a sense requires belief in it, right? You have to buy into it. You have to, you have to have a, a, a suspension of disbelief which is stated positively belief, right? So you have mm. to go in with the possibility of belief, right? With the yeah. risk, uh, the hazard of belief. Uh, and he genuinely believed in his world, right? Um, he saw what he was doing as being real and as having some real lasting value that at the act of subcreation yeah. uh, as being valuable in and of itself, right? So in, in Mythopoeia, his poem, he states, you know, <laughs> that these, these are things, uh, these works, these ideas, um, they, they're enduring and he believes they could continue to endure and take on more greater life in some way, shape or form. But the, the, the scope and scale, I, 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 no, I'm taking back the quality of what he's doing is, is mythic, right? And so in, in Lewis's review of Fellowship of the Rings, um, he's talking about, you know, how, how people are receiving it and, Lewis says, uh, what shows we are reading myth, not allegory with, you know, direct kind of one-to-one -one comparison is that there are no pointers to specifically theological or political or psychological application. A myth points for each reader to the realm he lives in most. It is a master key. Use it on what door you like. So Tolkien mm. didn't have a specific point necessarily he was trying to make. He's dealing with the fundamental you know human experience and did so in such a significant and poignant way that anybody no matter where you are they could find some point of relevance it could resonate in some way and so he thought about it and cared about it and believed in the life that he was living right i think that he appreciated his own world you read his letters right there's there's significant overlap between what he believes you know his religious life uh his political life right um it, it, his life is an environmentalist in a sense all yeah. the things he believed and cared about deeply and so he took that care that he had for life and put that into his writing and so because of that you know deep belief that he has in the world that he was living yes. in um i think that's what makes it so powerful and relevant he wasn't just putting on shows like what's going to convince people that what's going to keep people reading or should i put in a plot twist here yeah Do i need an yeah. act break or whatever he's, he's he's just he's more concerned about what are these What's, how does history unfold? <laughs> yes. Right. No, no, exactly. Right. Right. And what, what do humans do? What is the human story? Uh, and like, really, because he really cared about that, 
mm. and put that into that that was the bedrock of his writings and his characters and everything that that that's what i think has allowed it to endure uh so long and have such a lasting impact on uh, on the world itself and and that's actually uh, another very helpful insight into the impact of um, lord of the rings is from alden the poet alden who was one of the early reviewers and he sums up what you were just saying really he says to begin with no previous writer has to my knowledge created an imaginary world and a feigned history in such detail but it is a world of intelligible law not mere wish the reader's sense of the credible is never violated so i think that's what sums it up that um it basically feels real tolkien has been the sub creator that he was aspiring to be so even though the world just exists in our imagination, it's as real as anything like that can be. And certainly for me as a writer, so taking this down to the personal level, I don't think I would be a writer today if I hadn't read Tolkien because I wanted to do that. I wanted to, that is that first to do that. I thought, wow, you did that. I want to do that. I don't do it in the same way as him at all. But I, I, he is the inspiration that I want to follow. So, you know, I'm very pleased that he joined us on the earth for the length of time he did. Um, what about you? Is, is, is that something that are you inspired to be creative as a result of reading Tolkien? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I, yeah, I, the, in my own writing, that's hovering in the background and i think what he for me uh showing that you know the people that exist in whatever fantasy world that you have um they have they have beliefs like tolkien himself had certain beliefs and so you see what the elves believe what the orcs believe what uh you know <laughs> melkor believes what the any of the other Ainur believe um and you see that shapes their world how they act as well and so that's something that's kind of constantly as i'm like what they're not this isn't just how they're what they're doing it's what they're thinking about um there there's more that's kind of going on in people's minds and the background and creating that so what is what is the world what are what are their thoughts what's their world view um that's something that is definitely stuck with me in in my own writing Thank you. And so um, to finish, we have two things we do. One is where in all the fantasy worlds is the best place for something. And then we have a tip. So we've been talking about Tolkien 50 years on almost um, from the day he died. So I was thinking, where in all the fantasy world is the best place to be Tolkien? Thinking about him as a professor of languages and literature. So um if you had a little professorial character sitting in some in one of these fantasy worlds, what would be a good place to be? Do you think the Tweedy gentleman who smokes a pipe? Where would you take it? <laughs> well, I was yeah when I was. I don't know if the jacket would work as well, but in the same world I mentioned, you know, Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. Oh yes, yes. You know the the school university. system there, right? So it's a university, and so thinking about that university setting and not just university setting but where language is directly tied to magic where tolkien's yeah. use of language 
he would be able to work different types of magic than he already has in the pros and worlds that he built. Uh, I think that would be, uh, I think he would probably enjoy that. That's a very good shout. I was thinking of Ursula Le Guin's Wizard of Earthsea World, mm. which again, um, but I came down to thinking actually that he would fit in very well in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, the Susanna Clark. Um, I think he'd feel quite at home in one of the, you know, arcane university rooms there. Um, <laughs> the practical magicians. Yeah, I think I, I could see him fitting in very well and actually not noticing much difference. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a bit like Oxford. Um, and what about a tip? Have you got a tip to share with us? Yeah, so looking at uh, Tolkien's life as a whole, um, one of the things that I've done, you know, I... I can't blame my parents for this, for not raising me from the youngest of age, uh, letting me know who Tolkien was um, and what he made. Um, but I have learned from them. And uh, so one of the first books I've been reading to my uh, my little son is uh, called John Ronald's Dragons. Uh, okay. It's a children's book. Uh, are you familiar with that? No, it sounds wonderful. Yeah, so it's uh, Carolyn McAllister and Eliza, illustrated by Eliza Wheeler. Um, gorgeous illustrations. It's a book about uh, um, uh, Tolkien's young life. Just to show the, the page of the art here. You can see just the oh, style. Yeah. Um, you see uh, Tolkien is basically taking him through his childhood about how he loved dragons, how his mother read him stories, and how he's looking for dragons yeah. uh, in the world around him and he's not quite finding those he's looking for them at school um he's making up languages uh right and he's exploring uh finds different bits and pieces in the environment at church you know he finds not dragons but different parts of things mm -hmm. um and in in war he finds different things that aren't quite dragons right tanks that are belching flames mm -hmm. uh and then but then later uh as he's a professor he writes you know in a hole in the ground the hobbit and then so he talks about his you know bilbo and how bilbo is the one that actually leads him to find the dragon that he was looking for uh since he was a child and so it's so a sweet that's story. absolutely charming tell us the title of that again yeah so this is john ronald's dragons by carolyn McAllister, illustrated by eliza wheeler okay and it's that's... it's actually it's well researched so you have after and there's you know an author's note um that has you know a full kind of like one page biography of tolkien uh, the illustrator's note she she notes all of the different historical references that she's included um the, like the different colored fairy books that tolkien oh, yes, used she's including those yeah. right um which and and different things yeah languages that are kind of callbacks easter eggs um are actually spelled out here in the in the illustrator's note there's a bibliography at the end for you know for more for a picture book that's on. pretty hard picture book right, right. <laughs> so it's right but you know the kids aren't reading this part but um you it's, are. <laughs> it's yeah but i am so for the parent and the other adult. so yeah. there's there's something for everyone but it's just a sweet story and you know my son knows who john ronald is and we talk about him sometimes and he knows who smaug is 
because he's here in the book and <laughs> we talk about that. So it's, yeah, so that's my, my tip is if you, if for those of you who want to share your love of uh, Tolkien uh, and what he's brought to your life and your imagination, um, that book, John Ronald's Dragons is a great way to introduce that to uh, younger uh, readers and minds. We must invite them on the podcast. That sounds fabulous. Yeah. Um, so my tip is, um, is it's January now or early February. Um, and you may be thinking about getting fit. So uh, my children who are all grown up have given, um, my husband this app, which is a walking app, which maps the number of steps you do onto the journey of, um, the fellowship. And the first installment is you walk from Hobbiton to Bree. Now this is all very well, but actually the map they give isn't terribly detailed. So the perfect is is nice, but it's not as good as my old favorite book, which I have on my shelf, which is The Journeys of Frodo by Barbara Strachey. So my top tip is if you're going to do this walking app, marry it by with following the journeys in Barbara's wonderful book where she has done a wonderful everything's on there where they stop for lunch where they meet the black rider and it really helps if ever you've been confused reading lord of the rings exactly where brie is in relation to archit and all that kind of thing just look at her maps she's done a wonderful job so my top tip if you want to get fit walk to brie or eventually to mordor um but have alongside the journeys of frodo book which is um, i think still in print but it's it's a real assistance when you're reading Lord of the Rings as well. So, Jacob, thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again about the, the 50th uh, anniversary of Tolkien's death, but I just wanted to start the year by having an over overview of where we've reached in 2023. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast. Brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favourite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace, starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.